0: That song is a reflection of a battle that was won the day that Jesus walked out of the tomb and wiped his hands and said, death loses. So may we celebrate him and him well today. Father, give us a great service. May we see Christ. It's in his name I pray. Amen. Please have a seat. Oh. Yeah, Jason, that one got me going. Oh. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, that's a real fitting fitting way to jump. Before we, we're going to end up in um, Acts chapter 9, so if you want to take your Bible, you can go there. But I, I, there's, there's something I want to do as a church family um, before we, we jump in together, and it's this. We, we, um, I mean, when we get together on Sunday mornings, and we come into this place together, we are here as citizens of God's kingdom in Jesus Christ. That's what we just celebrated in Psalms. We worship and celebrate because of God's good news, because of God's grace in our life, because of the love that God showed for us in his son, Jesus Christ. We have the opportunity to come and sing loud. We don't necessarily sing pretty. Some of you sing pretty. That ain't me. I got loud down without a problem, though. And so I'm just going to let it. But we do that not because we like to hear ourselves sing. We do that Because the message of the music that we're singing is packed full with the truth that I, and and, and understand this is going to be very, um, I don't know, this will not be very mature, but you'll understand what I mean in a second. I'm a loser. And yet Jesus Christ reached down and said, That one's mine. And so that's what we celebrate. We don't do church, however, we don't do life in a vacuum. It'd be great if we could. Great if we could just walk into this place and shut out everything that's happening around us, but we don't. We do church, we do life aware that in our calendar, particularly our calendar, there's certain things and events that occur that we should pay attention to. And it's not what you think I'm talking about because it ain't the election, and that's whatever. It's far greater than that. Now, Friday was Veterans Day. Friday is a day that our country has set aside to honor those who have served our country in the military. So, in a moment, I'm going to ask any veteran who's here with us this morning, who's willing to stand, to stand where you are so we can recognize you because I believe that is good and that is right. But before we do that, let me say something. If, if you're a veteran with us this morning, please don't feel like you need to stand. Um, I'm aware, and I think many of us are aware, all too aware, of the stress and the fatigue The wounds, both physical and emotional, that come with serving in the military. So, while we as a church family want to honor you, perhaps for some of you, the most honoring thing we can do is say, you don't need to stand up. But if that's you, please know, in a moment, whoever does stand up, when we applaud for them and then pray for them, we're applauding for you and praying for you as well. So... If you'd be willing to stand and you've served our country in the military, I would love for you to do so so that we can honor you as our family, as our veterans. Please stand. So, so, church, I'm going to pray, but I'm going to encourage you to do something. When we stay silent in our gratitude, it doesn't do anybody any good. And so, you've got your eyes locked in on them. Make sure you say thank you. Would you join me in praying. Father God, I thank you for these folks who have stood before us and who have served this country that's our home. I'm thankful for their willingness to be used to represent our country, and to do so with great courage. Lord, we know that um, military service comes at a cost. So many men and women have, and, and actually they even continue to to this day, uh, have given their lives in service. So many who are here have, have lost brothers and sisters in arms. So I ask for grace and peace in their lives. I do pray for those who are wrestling with the very real stress of post-service life that they would have their minds filled full with the reminder of not only our appreciation of them but the love of their good Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, may, may we be a grateful people. May we be intentional people who express our gratitude to these among our family today. We thank you for your great love for us that was demonstrated in the giving of your son, Jesus Christ, in whose name I pray, amen. Thank you. Thank you. So, one night, I'm starting all dramatic, you ready? (laughs) One night a man had a dream He dreamed he was walking along the beach with the Lord. Across the sky flashed scenes from his life. For each scene, he noticed two sets of footprints in the sand, one belonging to him and the other to the Lord. And when he looked at the last scene of his life, he turned back at the footprints in the sand. And he noticed that many times along the path of his life, there was only one set of footprints. He also noticed that that seemed to happen at the very lowest and saddest times in his life, and that really bothered him. And so he questioned the Lord about it. Lord, you said that once I decided to follow you, you'd walk with me all the way. But I've noticed that during the most troublesome times in my life, there's only one set of footprints. I don't understand why when I needed you most, you would leave me. All right, pause. We are so overwhelmingly familiar with that story that for many of us, it's lost the luster. We could quote it sarcastically in what God's response in this poem to this individual is, because we're familiar with it, so it's lost the zip. And for those of you that don't know, the great response that this artist wrote, the Lord replied to this one who felt like he had been abandoned, perhaps in his most difficult times in life, and there was only one set of footprints in the sand. The Lord replied to him, "'Son, my precious child, I love you, "'and I would never leave you. "'During your times of trial and suffering,' When you see only one of set of footprints it was then that i carried you I remember the first time i heard that do you remember the first time you heard that kind of that oh goosebumps shivering oh uh, shivering quin <laughs> quivering chin there it is i haven't had enough coffee yet um but but that that just that wow because it is it's a beautiful picture Of the relationship we have and love with our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the problem is, like I said before, for many of us, because we've heard it so many times, it loses the shock and awe. It loses the wonder. We're going to read a story in Acts chapter 9 right now that is similar. It's the story of Saul coming to salvation. Paul, the apostle. And because we know the story, it doesn't surprise us in the way that it should. You would never, ever, ever, ever had dreamed that this man, Saul of Tarsus, would have been somebody that God would have used, that he would have been God's chosen vessel. But I think for all of us, we're so familiar with the story, we've lost that sense of awe about what's going to happen in Acts chapter 9. In Acts chapter 9, Luke begins by telling us this after the, Philip's interaction with the Ethiopian eunuch and, and the amazing um, response of the Ethiopian as he comes to Christ and is baptized and is rejoicing. He, he refers back to a fellow he had mentioned early, end of chapter 7 and early chapter 8, this fellow named Saul of Tarsus. And he says this in verse 1 of chapter 9. Saul who's still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and he asked him for letters to the synagogues at Damascus so that if he found any belonging to the way, men or women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. So, Luke begins his story by referring to Saul, who is a Pharisee of the highest caliber. Saul is the, I mean, he, he is the most notorious and well-known Pharisee of his time. He, he, he came from a great academic background. He studied underneath a fellow named Gamaliel. Gamaliel, if you remember, back in Acts chapter 4, is the fellow who spoke up and said, listen, let them be. If this is of man, it's going to just fall apart. But if this is of God, you could be standing against God. That's Gamaliel. That's the man that Saul studied underneath. Gamaliel was like the MVP of the Pharisees. So, and I, I racked my brain, and I, I know some of you are gonna boo, but I'll get over it. This would be like a college-age quarterback studying under Tom Brady. Okay, there it is. Okay, I knew it was coming. So. I knew which way to lean, dude. Did you see that? I came over here for you guys. <laughs> But but think about that. So where did you, oh, I studied under Tom Brady. He mentored me. That means something in today's NFL. That means something in today's culture. So who did you study your financial advisory under? Who, Who was your financial mentor? Warren Buffett. Okay. That means something in that realm. Well, in the realm of the Pharisees to have studied under Gamaliel, that means something. That's who this... Saul is, and it says that he's continuing to breathe out threats and murders. The idea of breathing out threats and murders is this. Everything he does is about taking down Christians. He, he, he not only threatened them, he went and, and got them. Acts 26, as he's giving his testimony to the King Festus, he, or, or King Agrippa, sorry, he, he said he would arrest believers, he would try to get them to blaspheme, he would then lock them up, and he wouldn't just walk away and be like, got another one, he would stay around so that he could cast his vote for the death penalty. So he went and got letters from the high priest, which those letters gave him permission to travel to Damascus, which is almost 150 miles away, to travel to Damascus to find all of these Christians who had scattered from Jerusalem and to arrest them and bring them back. And and don't overlook, men and women, he's arresting men and women, that's significant. For the Pharisees to identify any woman as being someone who was threatening to them was a whole new game. But because of the the, the work of the Holy Spirit in the lives of these people, both men and women were being used by God to spread the good news of Jesus Christ. And he was angry. Saul was angry enough to walk 150 miles to Damascus just to arrest people who he was angry at. That would be like you being willing to walk out of this building and end in Richmond, Virginia. You'd have to walk. I went on Google Maps to find the most convenient way to get to Richmond, Virginia if you're walking. You would have to walk down Route 1, which I don't know why in the world you'd want to walk down Route 1, and it would take you 54 hours of walking. Now, that means you don't stop, you don't take any breaks, you don't sleep, you don't. So, 54 hours, 54 hours of continuous walking to get from here to Richmond, Virginia. If you're that angry with somebody, there's an issue. And that's how torqued Saul is. Why? Why is Saul so very angry? Because these folks who have come to know Jesus Christ and are filled with the Holy Spirit and suddenly are so bold and courageous and, and outspoken. These men and these women are proclaiming, they're not proclaiming that you have to be a faithful Hebrew. He's not proclaiming that you have to be a a faithful Jew, born in the right family, under the right circumstances, following the right code of law, making sure you worship on the right day, don't do the wrong things on the wrong day. These people are saying those things, not only do you not have to do those, but those things mean nothing. And Paul's entire life is built on those things. Saul, at this moment, in Philippians chapter 3, he kind of gives us the background of who he was. He says, listen, if anybody thinks they have confidence in the flesh, this is where I stood before Christ. I was circumcised on the eighth day. I was the people of Israel. I was the tribe of Benjamin. I was a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He says, listen, my pedigree is beyond anybody else's. My family, my heritage set me apart from anybody else, and I am something. When you think about the law, man, I was a Pharisee. When it comes to zeal, I was a persecutor of the church. When it comes to righteousness under the law, I was blameless. Not only was my pedigree good and my family good, but my my religion was to be envied. My morality was unquestioned because I was the man. And the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. And and obviously, we preach it with much more sensitivity in our heart. But in reality, it's God looks at all of those things and says, that means nothing. That just means you're a really good sinner. The disciples are saying none of that matters even a little. The disciples are saying, there is a resurrected man named Jesus. And he and he alone can bring salvation. He and he alone can bring peace with God. None of this other stuff that you're resting in and trusting in. It's in Jesus and in Jesus alone. And if you reject him and instead you trust in your own morality, you trust in your own spirituality, you trust in your own heritage, your own relationships, not only are those things not going to help you, but if you put your full trust in those things, they're going to damn you to hell. There's an anger in the man. And there's a frustration enough where he would get letters to walk 150 miles to get at these people. And he would arrest any and all of them and bring them back. And when the vote came for death or life, he'd be like, death. That's just the first two verses, (laughs) verse three. When... Saul, and I'm going to call him Paul every time, I'm sorry, I'm just going to tell you that now. His name changes later. As Saul went on his way, he approached Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven shone around him, and falling to the ground, he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Saul, who's on the ground, said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, who you're persecuting. Now rise, enter the city, and you'll be told what you are to do. Now the men who are traveling with Saul stood speechless, hearing the voice but not seeing anybody. Saul rose up from the ground. And and, and although his eyes were opened, he saw nothing. So they led him by the hand. They brought him to Damascus. For three days he was without sight, neither ate nor drank. So a couple of interesting things I just want to point out as we continue on in the story. It's very interesting that when Jesus arrests Paul on the road to Damascus, I mean you hear his Jesus voice, why are you why are you persecuting who? Me. Isn't it interesting that when Jesus arrests Saul on the way to Damascus? that Jesus is asking, why are you persecuting me, even though Saul was persecuting who? Church, the Christians. See, this body of believers isn't a building, it isn't a group, it's not a club, this is Jesus' family. These are his children, and you know mom and dad, somebody takes a swing at your little cub, mama bear comes out, right? It don't matter, Mama Bear. And you might actually, after Mama Bear comes out and tears apart somebody who complained about your child, you may get them in the car and go, I don't ever want to see you act like that again. But it doesn't matter because Mama Bear is going to protect her child and Jesus says, these are mine. Why are you persecuting me? Folks, take encouragement in that. Be, Be overwhelmed by that. That we have a Savior who didn't just die for us and walk away. We have a Savior who claims us as his children. These others didn't see what was going on. They heard it. They knew something was going on, and the thing that had to have really affected them was here is Paul, Saul, sorry, the most aggressive persecutor of the church, falling down on his face. He's now, he's now unable to walk by himself. He needs to be led by other people to Damascus. He's blind. He can't see. Everything's changed. What is going on? It's this bizarre situation. Let's continue on, verse 10. Now, there was another disciple at Damascus whose name was Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, rise, go to the street called Straight, and at the house of Judas... Look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he's praying and he's seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. And so so Jesus shows up, Ananias, and Ananias doesn't seem quite as shocked as Saul was to hear from Jesus, does he? That's interesting. Ananias hears the voice and he says... And Jesus says to him, I want you to go, and he gives him direct instructions. You can't mess this up. It's perfect. It's wonderful. It's, listen, what I want you to do is I want you to go down, go down um, First Avenue, hang a left on Straight Street. You're going to go to Judas' home. It's the one with the green shutters, the white front door. <laughs> I'm making that up in case you were wondering. It's not in there. Was, is that in the Greek? That's awesome. No, it's not. And when you walk in, you're going to look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. Okay, so it's getting specific. Straight Street. Judas' house, this guy's from Tarsus, his name is Saul, he's praying, he's seen a vision, a man named, well, go figure, Ananias, who's going to come in because he's blind and needs somebody to lay his hands on him so he can regain his sight. May I interpret verse 13 in the vernacular, please? Ananias says, good one, Jesus, that's funny. No way. Oh, it's not a joke? Look at verse 13, and Ananias says, Lord, wait, hold on, um, I've heard from many about this guy, how much evil he's done to your saints at Jerusalem, and, and he's got authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. Um, yeah, you sure about this? And the Lord said to him, go, because he's a chosen instrument from mine. He's going to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel, and I'll show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. See, what Jesus says to Ananias now is, listen, it's not Saul, it's not the persecutor, he's not the enemy, this isn't the one who's done great harm to the early church, it's not the guy who voted for the death penalty for everybody who was being arrested, this is God's chosen instrument. God's chosen instrument to spread the gospel message far and wide. Let's finish reading the story and we'll see that that's exactly what he begins doing. Ananias departs, obedient, which is amazing. And he entered the house and he laid his hands on Saul and he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you came, has sent me so that you can regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and he regained his sight. And he arose, and he was baptized. After taking food, he was strengthened. And for some days, he was with the disciples at Damascus. And immediately, he proclaimed Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He's the Son of God. Time out. He went to Damascus to go to the synagogues to arrest those who were following Jesus who claimed that he was the son of God. He got the paperwork, the warrants, if you will, to go down and arrest them. They've heard about him, they know about him. He walks into the synagogue and they have to be like, oh no, and he's like, hey, good news, Jesus is the son of God. Um, um, I love verse 21. All who heard him were amazed. And they said, isn't this the man who made havoc in Jerusalem of those who called upon his name? Has he not come here for this purpose, to bring them bound before the chief priests? But Saul increased all the more in strength, and he continued to confound the Jews who lived in Damascus by proving that Jesus was the Christ. This is a story that should blow your mind. And so I'm going to... We'll put the what if now. You ready? The what if is this. What if we believed that God could save the unsavable? What if you believe that God could save the unsavable? Think about Ananias. He's like, wait, wait, hold on. You know who he is? You know what he's done? You know how dangerous this fella is? You know what he's got permission to do to me? You know, he's not a guy who just, you know, Cuts me off in traffic when he sees my fish bumper sticker. He's not a guy with just passive-aggressive Facebook posts. This guy shows up, arrests people, and tries to get the death penalty. This, This dude is bad. No way this guy could ever be used. No way this guy could ever be saved. He is unsavable. So just for a simple second, I want you to think in your head of the name of someone, anyone, who you think is unsavable. Get that name in your head. I'm not gonna make you do anything crazy with it. I just want it to click in your head. Okay, now wrestle for just a moment as to why they would be unsavable. Why? Why them? 1 Corinthians 6, and and you can look there later if you want, turn there now if you want, but 1 Corinthians 6 lays out, well, 1 Corinthians is a letter from Paul to one really messed up church. And he gets to chapter 6, and he's he's really um, taking them to task for the way they're treating each other and other believers. And in verse 9, he says, don't you know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Now, don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And you know the way the New Testament epistles were written, they were written to be read out loud. For as messed up a church as it is, there was certainly that one fella standing in the corner as this letter is being written, and he's like, yeah, yeah, you tell him, preach it. Yeah, that Paul, he's got this together. Listen, he's just tearing them apart. He's ripping them. Yeah, you don't get to get into the kingdom of God. You have no place in the kingdom of God because you are like that, and you are like that. And, and you've got to imagine that the poor fellow who's reading the epistle out loud of the church is like, oh, sh- sh- don't, don't. That's why sometimes I get worried. I love when you guys talk back to me. But sometimes I get worried you talk back at the wrong moment. I'm like, oh, this is going to sting a little. Because after going through this vice list and talking about these sins and saying these people will not inherit the kingdom of God, Paul cuts to the quick and says, And such were some of you. See, but now you're washed and sanctified and justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of God. See, see, the only thing that makes you different than any of them is what was done for you, not what you did. You don't stand before God in peace because you're perfect and sinless and good enough and more obedient. You paid better attention in school or in church or you wore the right clothes or carried the right Bible or voted for the right person and held the right moral stance on anything. There isn't a chart in heaven that ranks our sin. Every sin is equally as disastrous in the eyes of God. Every sin has different consequences. I won't argue with that. There's different consequences. But each and every one of our sin is an act of us pushing God off his throne and saying, that's my chair. And such were some of you. Your hope is the same as anybody else who comes to Jesus being washed, sanctified, and justified. But unfortunately what we do is we like to do what we want when i want we like to demand perfection in everybody else and criticize the masses without ever taking a hard look at ourselves we love looking at others and claiming their evil and wickedness while we have this big mahunk and log hanging out of our eyeball fall down fall down there is a merciful God who has watched you come to the end of yourself, and He still reached out and He saved you. You shouldn't have a sense of entitlement. There are days, and I don't want to be—you know me—I like to say too much. There are days where I, um, if my prayer was being recorded, some of you would be like, "Do we have the right guy up there?" Because there are days where I am um, very <laughs> broken. I can't believe that God would save me. At some point I'll share my entire testimony with the church. I I get uncomfortable doing that because I want to reflect on Jesus but so I have to make sure I do it in a way that makes much of what Jesus did for me. Here's making much of what Jesus did for me. My wife and I and the kids um, stopped at Mary's Little Lamb which is crazy. The town I grew up in the author of Mary had a little lamb was there. So we had this commemorative lamb, it was about this big, it's tiny, but it's the one thing you did in town, it's not to hang out, but it was the one thing that was worth seeing. And so we had stopped there when we had kids, and this lady pulled up her car, jumped out of her car, jumped the fence, and was kind of running to us with a handful of pamphlets. She was with the Historical Society of my town. And I recognized her right away, it was a small town, that's where I grew up. And when she ran up to us, I'm like, "Mrs. Nelson," and she's like, "I'm sorry." I'm like, "Oh, oh, I know your son, Leo, buddy." She's like, oh, "Okay, okay." And what's your name? I'm like, Frank Taylor. And she. We thought you were dead. <laughs> it's a weird feeling when you hear that come from somebody. And yet, when you consider that and drive away from that, the thing that was overwhelming to me is, why would God have reached down when that's the path I was on and saved me? And I don't deserve salvation. Maybe this will be encouraging to somebody, I don't know. Um, I was struck with a profound sense of, of that this week, of, Lord, why did you save me? And then I was um, reminded, Man, in, in those moments, It's beautiful. Because in those weak moments, you're strong, not because weakness is some, um, <laughs> some muscle supplement or something. In your weakness, you're strong because it's in my weakest moment that I realize what's given me any standing at all, and it's Jesus Christ. And so, apart from Jesus, I am unsavable. You know who the most spiritual person in the entire world is? It's the person who can't get over God's grace in their life. It's the person who looks at other people with the awareness of what they've been saved from and looks at them and says, man, they are not too far gone. God's grace is ridiculous. It's amazing. It's overwhelming. And that's, that's what we need to wrestle with. If, if, and it actually leads to, to, to something about Saul that we see. This is, um, this is, so think about it. Saul wasn't like the Ethiopian riding on a chariot reading Isaiah 53, You couldn't say that God had been working in his heart and and the Holy Spirit had been doing the effectual calling and drawing him near. When Saul had that collision with Jesus on the road to Damascus, he was on his way to arrest and kill people. So it's not like, oh, keep praying, I think he's almost there. And yet, out of nowhere, this astonishing suddenness, Jesus arrests him. God wants us to see the most unlikely people can be saved and are saved. God's mercy and power aren't limited to people who have been set up for Christianity by a good family or high morals. Um, all right, so there's two verses I want to share with you. So if we could put 1 Timothy 1.15 up on the screen, it's one that we're somewhat familiar with. We're going to stay here and, and I'll, I'll, I'll let you know when to turn it. If you turn it too soon, then I lose the wow moment. <laughs> Nobody laughed. That's terrible. Okay, move on. This is a familiar verse for us, isn't it? It's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. That's Saul. That's Paul. He's looking at his life and saying, I should never have tasted of the salvation of God, but, but he came to the world to save sinners, and I'm the worst one. I'm the worst one. And that's, there's a refreshment there, but there's something much greater than that. Because what he says is, you need to understand why I was shown mercy. And before we go to the end of the verse, we can look at it and be like, I know why you were shown mercy, because God is merciful. Absolutely. I know why you were shown mercy, because you were humble and fell on your face and said, I cannot save myself and I need a Savior. Absolutely. But the Apostle Paul, in particular, was saved for a specific reason. What was that reason? So, I was the worst of sinners, and Jesus Christ saved me. And he did it for this reason. All right, let's flip the screen here. So that in me, the worst of sinners, Jesus Christ could display his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe on him and receive eternal life. What Paul says as a reflection of his life is the only, Jesus saved me. And you know why he did it? So that those who think they're too far gone can look at my life and go, that guy was, 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 was claimed by God before the foundation of the earth. And yet his entire life up until the Damascus Road was a rebellion and an argument and a fist fight with God. And yet in his patience, God saved him. So that if you're sitting here thinking you're too far gone, the Apostle Paul goes, man, I was the worst of sinners. And I got the mercy of God, so can you. So that if you're sitting here and you're, you're looking at somebody and that person who had come to your mind, the unsavable one, there's no one unsavable. Look at where Saul was. So he says that his conversion, his, his face-to-face moment with Jesus, was a demonstration of the perfect patience of Jesus Christ. Not wanting anyone to perish, but that all would receive eternal life. So don't lose heart. Don't think that he couldn't really save you and you're too far gone. Don't, don't think you've gone too far away. Don't think the one that you love the most and continue to pray for can't be converted because it can happen in slow, methodical, very slow, very methodical steps. Or it could be like the Apostle Paul who there was no evidence of him ever coming to Jesus Christ and then it happened. We celebrate the fact that there is none unsavable and that means you. So this morning, in a moment, I'm going to pray, and we're, we're going to do a response song, and we'll sing together. But I'm going to encourage you, these, these here on the floor, these uh, kneeling altars aren't here for decoration, they're here if you want to come pray in the front. Or some of our elders and pastors will be available in the back, some of our counselors will be available in the back and at the kiosk. And if you just want to go with someone and talk, and let me encourage you, go. 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 If you want to pray for somebody, a loved one, who you think, oh man, I don't know, there were the unsavable ones that came to mind, then go. Ask someone to pray with you this morning. We celebrate the fact that in Jesus Christ, as long as you have breath in your lungs, you're savable. Let's pray together. Father God, I thank you for the truth that Jesus does love us. I thank you that in Christ we can have eternal life. I thank you that in Jesus Christ we can have more than that. We can have peace with you. God, I pray that you would be the one that's here this morning who, who may have thought they were too far gone. May today be the day that they recognize that, that you have called them and you love them and you have sent your son, Jesus Christ, to die for them. I pray for those who we have serious questions about, whether it be our family, our loved ones, our neighbors, our co-workers... Just, just prominent people whose name is familiar to us. God, I pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to work in their heart. I pray that you would convict them of their sin, and that they would come to know and love Jesus Christ. God, I pray you would help our unbelief. I pray you would remind us often that Jesus Christ came to save sinners and that he's not done yet. So Lord, I ask you would do a work in each of our hearts. Encourage us with the fact that you've shown us grace. May it not get too familiar. Amen.